Good morning, everybody. This is the What's the Hazard podcast. Aaron coming at you today, filling in for Doug. He is predisposed, being the good husband, uh, running some errands uh, for his wife. She's got some tests this morning, so let's hope that all goes well. He might pop his head in here in a little bit, but you're stuck with me for the next hour or so. Uh, talk about everything safety and leadership. We got a new man behind the board. We got Cam with us today. Hey, how you doing, Aaron? Good. What's going on, buddy? Oh, just hanging out. Uh, it's, it's just loving life, man. Yeah, so I'm kind of set up for failure today. Doug called me in. I'm rolling <laughs> solo, no guests. I got a new person behind the board. Do they even call it the board anymore? They call it a board. Yeah, we got boards. We got it's all digital, you know. So it's it's whatever you want to call it on the uh, on the audio equipment. The I audio guess what we equipment preferred. <laughs> yeah, the big screen. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. So I guess Salsa's on the bigger and better things. Yep. She doesn't hang out with the commoners anymore. No, she's too good for us. That's probably fair. <laughs> That's probably fair. Good for her. Anyhow, uh, we're going to talk a little bit of everything today. We got some questions from the students over at Metro as well that listen to our podcast as part of their classes. I do want to thank out Doug's sponsors first and foremost. Uh, CCS Group, Custom Concrete Specialist, Cheyenne over there, always helping Doug out. Uh, Fallowich Construction Services, John. Again, a uh, personal friend of mine, um, great person, helping Doug out as well. And the Nebraska Department of Labor, their on-site consulting group with Jim. Thank you, everybody, for uh, supporting Doug and his podcast. He talks about some great stuff and gets some really good information out there uh, in an area that's often sorely overlooked in, in various industries, and that being safety uh, across the board. Um, we're going to talk a little bit today. Uh, we've got some questions from... Metro students uh, about micromanagement and accountability and whatnot. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, trust probably first and foremost um, and different levels of trust, especially as it applies to the, the safety realm. And, um, and Cam, you can probably relate to a little bit of this too. When, when you hire somebody, you start working with somebody, there's a level of trust um, that you have to have uh, to know they're going to do a good job, not just that trust they're going to show up on time, and put in a day's work, but you got to trust they know what they're doing and not going to cut corners. I can imagine, especially in an industry like this, where I'm sure not all sound guys or production guys are created equal and girls. Uh, no, yeah, you, you get, uh, get some good, get some bad, but hopefully they get a good enough training to at least, right. you know, skate by. So it, right, <laughs> it's, one, it's one thing for me to sit here and blab for an hour, but, you know, for it to turn out right on the back end, I have to trust that you know what you're doing and everybody at Herd at Media knows what they're doing. Um, as, as well as, you know, in various industries, when you hire somebody, a new employee, you're trusting they're going to show up on time. You're trusting that they're doing honest day's work. And then uh, you're, you're trusting they're not going to do something stupid to get somebody killed on the job or, or get somebody seriously hurt. And that, that's, a, that's a big level uh, of concern, you know, and you don't know what somebody's like. You can interview. People interview great. Some people's resumes, we all know everybody lies on their resume. You know, it's overblown and, and fluffed up and inflated. And you don't know until somebody gets on the job uh, what they're going to be like. And it takes some time to trust somebody. And in safety, you know, it, it's one mess up and we got a serious issue as well. Uh, so especially when people, I know I've always tell my students that your resume is not going to get you a job. It's if you know somebody. Someone's going to refer you, personal referral, um, uh, they know somebody in the company. Uh, they're going to say, hey, check this guy out or check this girl out. I recommend them. So they're vouching for you. And, and that's huge, right, in my mind. I, there's a question about accountability here. Um, you know, when somebody vouches for you, they're basically putting their stamp of approval 
on you that say, I, I trust this person, you should trust them as well. Yeah, it's their reputation online. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then and then the knucklehead goes out on the job site and forgets to tether off or forgets to put the safety block up and then somebody gets hurt. Um, and, and that's tough. It's tough to gauge uh, somebody. You know, I always when I always hired people in the interview process, I would always hire more looking for personality and, and those intangibles. Like I can read what's on their resume and I can see where they've worked and, and what they've studied and, and it's all great. But what kind of person are they? Like, is this the type of person I know is going to go out there and do the right things when I'm not looking? Like, can I trust them to follow all the safety procedures when I'm not looking or am I going to have to be on top of them constantly? And then, you know, can I give them some training and then I know they're good and, and run with it. And that's tough, right? That's a gamble, especially with a new somebody new. Um, I imagine the first time you were left to fly solo behind the board, um, it was probably nerve wracking for you and everybody involved. Yeah, I mean, especially in, in my previous positions, like at least when I got to here, which was about a month ago, I you know seasoned vet at that point in time, so sure. it's just push record and do the do the deed. But uh, yeah, definitely first time flying solo on on any kind of board, it's very nerve wracking. Like, don't want to mess it up. You got to keep everything. There's so many things going through your brain at that sure. one time that you just gotta. Do I really know what I'm doing? Right. Am I, right? Yeah. Things you like trusted that. your training at that point. Sure. Yeah. Sure. And I think that's 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 the key there is with you know hiring a, someone brand new, someone green, still wet behind the ears taking them onto a job site, you have to know that, okay, um, they're motivated, they've been trained, but do they really know what they're doing? And you probably have to watch that person a little closer, right? And, and you know, when it comes to micromanaging, I'm not, I'm not big on micromanaging, except when somebody's new and green and still trying to figure it out, you kind of need to micromanage them a little bit. Not in the sense that you're always over their shoulder telling them what to do or how to do it, but you're kind of watching a little bit closer. And I imagine your early bosses in your early days of, of this industry, they were watching you a little closer and probably well, maybe yeah. you thought they were. And for good reason, too. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, you, you exactly. got to teach people how to do it the way you want it done. And, sure. you know, that's part of that, too. You don't, and there's standards. Right? Yeah, yeah, don't necessarily have to micromanage them, but at least make sure they're getting it done to the standards that you've set as that guy. Right, or and, and I yeah. think that's, that's the key there. That's a fine line between, you know, paying a little bit extra attention to a newer person and micromanaging that person. It's like, I'm going to give them enough room, enough leash to maybe hang themselves a little bit, but not so much they torpedo the whole operation. And yeah. I'm going to be quick to step in. Still to jump kinda, in there and help them out. Right, keep, them, it, yep. keep them on the rails, keep them in the lane. Um, but not so much that I'm on top of them all the time. And then, obviously, as that person gets seasoned, you can give them a little more leash and then get hands off. And then at some point, you don't really don't need to pay too much attention to them, except when you're checking in and making sure standards are being kept. And then vice hiring somebody who's, in this case, you're already seasoned coming in, they have confidence that, uh, okay, well, Cam's been around for a while. I can see who he's worked with. This guy can hit the ground running, and I don't need to be on top of him. I'll, I can see the end product, whether he knows what he's doing or not. And that, I think the same thing applies to a lot of construction and industrial environments. Um, you know, you hire a vet, veteran, and then you can pretty be hands-off with them and have a higher level of accountability and autonomy with that. But at the same time, you know, people make mistakes, right? And you can't totally ignore somebody just because they have a lot of experience because, you know, especially in industry in the safety world, um, Standards change. Uh, requirements change. Somebody that's been on the job for 20 years, I promise you that the requirements and the standards are not the same today as they were 20 years ago. 
And a lot of people will get, kind of get what I say stuck in the mud, meaning they're so set in their ways. They're so set in, well, that's how we've always done it. Why do we have to change? And even though if you explain it to them, they're still probably going to revert back to their old ways if you're not careful. You know, so again, not micromanaging, but understanding that, okay, I understand where this person is coming from. I understand they've got 20 years doing it this way, but I need them to do it this way. Now I probably need to pay a little bit more attention um, to that person. And, you know, I imagine in your line of work, technology is probably the big thing, right? New technology comes down the pipe. Definitely. Some people adopt it quickly and some people are just like, eh, I'm fine with the way I'm doing it now. Yeah. Right, some guys still have the boards with the vacuum tubes. I'm sure still. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I couldn't, just don't I couldn't get imagine doing anything reel to reel. You know, like my dad was a radio guy, and he had to cut tape and tape it sure. together and all that stuff. And he had you know cut some of his fingers and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, well, I do it all digitally now, so <laughs> I couldn't imagine going back to that. So you know? what's funny is, you know, when, when I was in high school, uh, when you wanted to put together your highlight tape, you literally had to have two vcrs oh yeah and two vhs tapes and then stop record stop record and then try to splice this thing together and then send that off to recruiters and just hope <laughs> and pray now you know you got the huddle technology and they just every kid has a highlight reel you can do it on your phone on your phone it's yeah. insane yeah. and uh when i was in the military one of my first jobs um was what they call electronic warfare and we had tons of equipment at the time state-of-the-art equipment but we had reel-to-reel things going on oh, yeah. and pulling off these these wheels it looked like the size of hubcaps and putting them back on running it through running big what well, you know look like vhs tapes and betas and and it's amazing now everything's what they call under glass it's just touch screen and it's all digital and which presents its own challenges because you know technology is only as good as the person using it and it fails like anything else but you know it, it's tough because when when i was in the military there was this big transition because Technology was changing rapidly, and we were trying to catch up, which means you're training people really fast, getting this new technology in there. And then you have these veterans, guys and girls that have been there for 20, 25 years who are just like, what's wrong with the old way? The old way worked fine. Well, it, it did, but there there can be better ways now. Yeah, maybe right? it's more efficient or just more efficient, less time Or, or it's, it's more accurate, and mm-hmm. it's, it's, uh, it gives us cleaner data and cleaner pictures. And it's tough making that transition for a lot of people because and it's not their fault. It's just when you do something for 20 years, force a habit says, I'm going to revert back to the way I did it. Yeah, you do it in your sleep. You do it you. in your sleep without <laughs> even thinking about it. You know, and on the job sites when, you know, one thing safety professionals need to think about is when you are bringing on new programs, bringing on new checklists, bringing on new procedures, you have to understand that some people are going to adopt to it really quick. Right, what they call those early adopters, uh, technology. There's people that will, when new technology comes out, they got to be the first to have it. They're the first to figure it out. That they they're on it, and then everybody else comes kind of later. And then you got the laggards who will wait till the very last minute to like till their stuff. And I was one too. Like I I didn't get a new phone until mine literally wouldn't charge anymore. And I, I it was like an iPhone three or some bull crap. And then I went right to an 11, right? That's how much of a gap I had. That is a huge jump. Right? (laughs) So, and I think before that I had a flip phone. But I was always the type of person that I I refused to buy a phone. It was ludicrous to me. I grew up in a time like buying a a phone, you know. And uh, so I I didn't get a new phone because when they did the 
last free upgrades, I was like, well, I'm not buying a phone, so I'm going to run this one till it dies. And I literally did run it till it died. And um, But you're going to have that. You know, you're going to have people that when new procedures come out, they're going to be re- resistant, not just because they're stubborn or they don't want to do it. It's because it's foreign to them. They're out of their comfort zone. It's They've done this thing for 20 years this way. And it's worked to their to their defense. It's worked fine. And it will continue to work fine, but that doesn't mean there's room for improvement or opportunity to get better. Um, And then this is where we have to teeter that line of micromanaging a little bit because you have to know it's going to take them more time to adopt these new procedures and or get on board with the new OSHA rules. And it's easy to say, this is the rule. We have to do it. Go. Salute smartly and go. And and they'll go, yeah. But you have to know that it's probably not going to happen at least right away, there's, there's going to be that period where, you know, that that growing pain period where they're going to remember to do it one day, then they'll forget to do it one day, then they'll do it for two or three days in a row, and then they'll, out of habit, they'll do it the old way one day. So you're going to get this hodgepodge of up and down. We're doing it, we're not doing it, we're doing it, we're not doing it. And you hope that if something bad happens, somebody gets hurt or there's an accident, it's on the day that they were actually doing the new procedure, not on the day they were doing the old one, and then now you have to answer those questions. So you do have to be a little more attentive, right, and be um, watching it. I don't want to say watch it like a hawk, but you have to be a little more aware. And, and self-awareness, that, that's a big thing right now. Um, awareness and mindfulness, those are two big buzzwords running around uh, LinkedIn right now. And, and to me, they're the same thing, but th- th- you can henpeck about the semantics of it. But growing up in the martial arts, self-awareness, we, we would learn – the selves, self-discipline, self-respect, self-control, self-confidence, self-esteem, self-awareness was one of them, right? And it was being aware of your surroundings. If you think in terms of fighting, being aware of your surroundings and knowing who's around you and, and when bad things are starting to happen. But it's also being aware of yourself, right? Like understanding your shortcomings, understanding your strengths, your weaknesses, things you need to work on, where you're growing, where you're not growing, uh, things like that. Um, for For safety professionals... Uh, in my mind, awareness is being aware that you have people like that on your crews, the old guy who's going to be resistant, the new guy that makes mistakes because he or she doesn't know any better, um, that person in between who's going to get it, who has no problem adapting. Overnight, they can do the new procedure, not a problem. So you got this hodgepodge of people, and, and from a management perspective, that's very difficult to handle. Um, I imagine in, in a larger media, not that her dad is, is a teeny tiny media, but, you know, the larger media companies, when, when they've they got brand new people and veterans and managing that is the same issue. It's like, I got to watch these guys a little bit closer. These guys can just run with it, but I also have to watch them because we decided we're going to do it a new way and I got to make sure they're doing it as well. Um, and it's across the board, you know, so that's where I, I think managers need to, teeter a little bit on that that micromanaging aspect in that I'm not being in there chilly, but I need to be aware of who I have and who I need to watch a little bit closer, who I need to pay attention to. And then, you know, obviously in just terms of safety, just being aware of, of the surroundings and the potential hazards. Uh, we always, um, in the military, we have a lot of contingency plans. Um, contingency being, this might happen, so let's have a loose plan on the shelf like a 70% solution, if nothing else. And then once it happens, we get the real-time data, then we flush it out and go. But we have something on the shelf ready to go. We're not just starting from scratch or getting caught 
uh, blindside. And then you'll war game and, and do scenarios based on, well, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if this happens? And, and here's a funny story. Um, I don't think it's any secret that um, the military does exercises in war games. You know, you've seen it in the movies, and it's just, you'd be a fool to think they don't practice. And the military constantly trains. That's all they do. They hurt, they kill more people in training than they do in war. Um, so um, we're, oh, they're always practicing in, in, in different scenarios and whatnot. And when 9 11 happened, um, when the one plane was flown into the Pentagon, it, it, was, it was tragic, tragic. But in the um, exercise community at the time, those scenarios had been proposed at times. What if somebody hijacks a plane and flies it into something? And, you know, obviously that would think that idea was so crazy, uh, it kind of got set to the side. Wow, okay, let's, we got more important things to exercise that we'll, maybe we'll get to that one day. And they never really got to it, which is crazy, right? So, you know, you always have to think outside of the box. Like, what could happen? Like, what what if we record this whole thing and we lose the data? Yeah. What if we record it and the guys next door were dropping weights the whole time and all of a sudden that's in the background? Like, do we have the ability to get that out? You know, things like that. Yeah. Around these parts, we call that a murder plan. A mur- like, yeah, sure. Everything that could go wrong, we got to you know, be ready for it. Once it hits right. us, then we have a plan to attack from then on out, whether, whatever it comes at us, you know. So, and like a, right now, I've got three recording devices on this. So, if, yeah. if one of them goes down, I got two That's more. Smart. You know? so, yeah. I actually, um, I, I did a little podcast, and uh, they were one of the radio stations was carrying it locally. And I did an interview with a guy, uh, a doctor, um, and a, a bariatric surgeon, actually. And we were talking about uh, he actually owns one of the float spas in town. Have you ever, have you ever done a float? I have not. My buddy has. He just, it says it's the best thing he's ever done. It's anybody that, when I mean by float, it, it's, uh, you're literally floating in a, in a sensory deprivation. Yeah, isn't it like tank. salt water or something like that? Yeah, it's super salinated salt water to the point where you literally float on the surface. It's completely dark. You're just in a it's bubble. It's dark, quiet, and the, the air temperature is the same as the water temperature. So you can't feel, with the idea being, you can't feel where the water begins and the air ends, right? Because it's all the same temperature. So you so, and I can only speak for myself. The first time I got in this, I sat in it, and I was I just started jostling all over the place because I wasn't used to just floating like that. So I was bouncing off the walls, and it actually took me a a couple minutes to figure out how to just relax and not feel be afraid that I was going to drown in this damn thing. And uh, so you're laying there, and it's completely quiet. Not you just left with your thoughts. And, and it's very trippy the first time. You almost have to learn how to float. Yeah. And learn how to be alone with your thoughts. Because that's a scary thing, too. You sure. Could, you could just go bananas or just have the most peaceful, serene time Sure. There, I, I think what I realized is that you, you think you're alone with your thoughts, like in your car, but there's noise and music and stuff going on. Until you're in complete sensory deprivation, no light, no sound, um, You, for me, I really realized how much my mind races from thought to thought. And it takes a while for your mind to calm down and to, to get like into a, for lack of a better term, a meditative state or, or a calm state. And that's the whole goal of it, right? You get to a calm state and, um, and you can actually relax. And, but that was tough. I didn't really figure it out till like the third time I did it. How long were you in each time? Like 15 minutes, 20, half, a half hour? Uh, they're an hour. I think they're, they're an, an hour, hour session, okay. half hour, an hour session. Gotcha. It, it flies by. Yeah. Um, and I felt like when I finally, like the second or third time I did it, I was like, man, I feel like I just fell asleep the whole time. And the lady's like, you probably did, right? Because you get into it. But that relaxed. Th- there's, yeah. that, there's that fine line between like, are you 
in a meditative state or a hypnotic state or actually asleep. Like you can't really, you can't tell as a person if somebody is with you, they could probably tell. But uh, that was, that was, that floating is crazy. And, uh, but anyway, how do we get on that? Oh, um, the person I was interviewing owns one of the, one of the first float spas in town. And uh, we did the whole interview. It was a great interview. We we're talking about, you know, how you can, couple floating with massage and meditation and just for mental health and all this jazz and it was an awesome interview we were just flying off the cuff you know it was those perfect interviews where just the discussion casual discussion brought out so much information and i got home i was going to go edit it and it was all corrupt and i i oh, man. literally brought a tear to my eye and you know me being an amateur i just set up my laptop i put one of the blue yetis up mm-hmm. and i think i was using um audacity to record which is a fine little free for an amateur and then but it was all corrupt and i just cried so i called him up like a week later and asked him if we could do it again and he said yeah no problem but it just isn't the same right you can't never recreate spontaneity and and off the cuff just wasn't there so i was so bummed um but you know i didn't have that backup plan like i didn't have that contingency plan what happens if things corrupt i don't even know what the hell corrupt meant or why it was corrupt i could have probably honestly god i could have probably Saved it. Had I known more, you know, if, if uh, somebody uh, of your caliber and your talent with this type of stuff, it could it was probably salvageable. Yeah. But at the time, I was like, ah, oh, screw it, we'll just do it again. You know, it was just easier to do it again for me at that point. But oh, it was such a bummer, you know. But I think it's one of those things where you have to again the murder plan, the contingency plans. You have to be ready for that. You know, you have to just sit there and and just brainstorm and dream up just doomsday scenarios like well. You know, people are like, wow, Aaron, you know, like, that just seems like a waste of time, and that'll never happen. You know, famous last words, that'll never happen. No, but no one ever thought we'd have had two major floods around here in the last 10 years, and yet I promise you a lot of businesses have flood plans now, right, contingency flood plans. No one ever thought uh, a virus would shut the whole place down. I promise you they all have contingency plans now. Right, it usually doesn't happen until after the fact, which is unfortunate because really it's good that you have it now, but the fact that it's after the fact, you could have mitigated a lot of the damage had you just sat and brainstormed a little bit. Just Even the wildest things are worth looking at because you never know what's going to yeah, happen. Yeah, being, being reactive instead of proactive is definitely right. not and, the way to go. And I, it, I yeah. teach operations, and proactive, I always tell my students, proactive is always cheaper. Right. When anytime you're reactive and you're doing damage control, it's it's always expensive, always more expensive, right? You know, it's kind of like that ounce prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? Anytime you can stay ahead of it, it's always going to be cheaper for you. Uh, and and if nothing else, from a business perspective and a dollar and cents perspective, it makes sense to do these contingency plans and into these doomsday scenarios and pontificate what might happen because it's better to be ahead of the game uh, rather than behind it and chasing your tail. You know, and then obviously from a management perspective, if you're ahead of it, now you can also get your people ahead of it and you can prep people for it. And, hey, you know, there, there's something coming down the pipe. Let's get ready for it. Or, you know, history's shown that you know, this is going to start to happen. Let's be ready for it. Um, you know, just in case, what happens? You know, the whole what if, like what if this happens? What if that happens? And then, and then at least expose people to it so it's not foreign to them. Like the first time you practice a checklist shouldn't be when the accident happens, right? Or the first time you see it shouldn't be when tragedy strikes and you're trying to figure out how do, how do I stop the bleeding? How do I stop the bleeding? Where's the checklist? 
um, at least know where to go to get the things. And and I think that that's, you know, bringing this full circle, you know, the, the micromanagement piece and the accountability piece go a little bit hand in hand. And, and they both kind of have to teeter a little bit. You know, I have to stay on top of people to make sure they're doing these things and, and have some trust that they are going to do it. But they also have to know that I'm going to come around and check on it, right? I'm going to set a standard and I'm going to manage to that standard. And then, you know, part of the accountability is, is like, I'm going to trust that you're going to do it. You're also going to trust that I'm going to hold you to it. And then at the end of the day, everybody's doing what they're supposed to do, right? You know, if a fall works well. Um, you know, I think the ultimate trust they always say is, you know, if you're going to do the work when no one's looking, right? And then the you know, ethics of it all. The ethics yeah. of it all. And, and what would you do if Jesus was there? You know, <laughs> that type of thing, <laughs> right? Uh, which was just got to be careful who you ask that, right? Because it may not matter in a lot of cases. Um, you know, but w- when you talk accountability, to answer one of the questions from, from the students, you know, that's really, in my mind, it, it's, it's taking responsibility and, and owning up to something. In other words, if something got screwed up, it, it's not pointing a finger and say, oh, that recording sucks. Well, Cam probably screwed it up on the back end, right? It'd be easy for me to say it wasn't anything I said. It's that the sound quality sucked, so it can't be my fault. And at the end of the day, it's like, well, you know, it's my show. It's ultimately my responsibility. i got to figure out how to prevent that in the future. And that might be just a simple discussion. It's like, hey, man, um, you know, I, I noticed the sound quality wasn't the best in that last one. Did we do something different or was it something I did? You know, I have to be willing to admit, was it something I did? And you might go, yeah, man, you had the mic right up in your throat and that's always going to distort it or you need to speak up a little bit, things like that. And, um, you know, I found that out the hard way the first couple of times I did my own podcast that it, it, how close you are and how loud you talk really changes. And then, you know, whether you get that crackling or distorting or, you know, the inflection of your voice, you think you're talking loud enough and you realize you're not. And then next time you're shouting, you're like, oh, my God, I'm blowing people up. And there, there's that fine line to figure out. But you have to be willing to go, okay, that, that one's me, right? That one was on me. That wasn't. Cam screwing it up and, and mess with the volumes, and at the same time, Cam screwing it up is not a thing people say. Just just throw oh, okay, that out. <laughs> Teflon or Teflon back there. But I think that's you know to your point there. A, a lot of managers um, do take that approach because they don't want to ex- take blame. They don't want to accept blame because now that's acknowledgement of their failure, and now they're worried about their job and their career progression. So it's easier to point the finger and say, "Well, I trained the person. I give them everything they needed. They screwed up." We just didn't hire the right people. I've actually heard that in meetings um, at, at various companies I worked for. Senior VPs making comments, well, we're not just hiring the right people. And I'm like, really? I'm like, are, are we really saying, first of all, if we're saying we're not hiring the right people, we're acknowledging we, we screwed up, right? <laughs> so you, you're, you're kind of talking back on yourself there anyway. But are, are we really saying that these people came in and just didn't want to work and just consciously did a bad job where we're just inept like are we really saying that or are we kind of admitting that we set them up for failure in a way and we're not acknowledging our own shortcomings as a management team and a leadership team that we could have done more um to set them up for success and and by default the organization up for success so that that's an accountability thing to me it's looking okay we got to look at myself first like if I if I think this recording doesn't turn out right, I have to look back at myself and say, was I prepared? Which I wasn't walking in here <laughs> due to the backstory. Doug getting to me kind of late, but not not his fault. He had something spring on him, and you know, 
was did I have a good interaction with the guest? Did I have good material? Did I speak to the material well? Uh, did I enunciate? Did I make my points clear? And then I have to answer all those questions. If I get a resounding yes, which I probably wouldn't, but if I get a resounding yes to all those, then I say, okay, now what else could it be? Right? Did we have a technology problem? Did we have an equipment problem? Um, and, and if there's not that, then I can start to go, okay, who else was involved? And did they do all those things? And so you have to go down the line, but you have to start with yourself first. Right? If there's a safety issue on a, on a job site, and somebody gets hurt, um, you know, the, the first question should be, okay, are they okay? Did we get them the, the treatment that they needed? Was their family notified? Let's get all those things out of the way first and foremost. That should be the first reaction. Are they okay? Is anybody else hurt? Um, did we shut the site down? Can this happen again? And then I have to go, okay, now let's look at first. Were the procedures right? Did we do the things we needed to do to make this happen? Rather than say, what did they do? Right? There's a lot of managers will, as soon as there's an incident, they'll go, well, what do they do? What do they do to screw up or who screwed up? And which is 180 out from how it should go because now that's placing blame and that's pointing the finger and that's total lack of accountability. Right? They're already going down that path of the blame game and, and whose fault is it because it's not going to be my fault, which is scary because someone's getting fired. Usually in that case, or reprimanded or getting a write up or they're going down that path of, of being a problem child, for lack of a better term. And, you know, anytime I had a team under me, I, anytime something would screw up, the first question I would ask, like if I got pulled into the office by my leadership and they say, hey, uh, there was a problem on your shift, one of your people did X, Y, and Z, my first question would be, well, what's telling us they screwed up? Okay, let me understand that first. What's telling us they screwed up? And then, okay, are the procedures proper for this problem or do we have the things in place before I can, before I want to say, yeah, this person did screw up because I don't know if they did or not. And you probably don't know if they did or not. They just happened to be the person on shift. Right. <laughs> and they were the, you know, line of sight. They took the face shot and, uh, I, you know, why, why do I want to ruin their career or reprimand them or have this talk if I don't need to, if at the end of the day it was a procedural problem we had. Then I can pull the whole team in and say, okay, guys, look, we had a problem the other night, a uh, little investigation. We saw we had a procedural problem. We're going to change this procedure so this doesn't happen again. It's nobody's fault in particular. We just need to make sure we retrain on this, and then going forward we have to do it this way. So now nobody is at fault on the team. They all acknowledge, okay, this got messed up. we got to do it this way now. And what it does is, again, going back to building trust, they now see that, okay, one of us isn't getting our head cut off because this bad thing happened. The organization and leadership is acknowledging, okay, this was a systemic problem and they're going to fix it and they're taking accountability for it. Whereas a, a, a lot of people, and I've seen this happen, they, uh, they'll just go, well, it's that person's fault. Either get rid of them or reprimand them or put them on probation X, Y, and Z. At the end of the day, that's, that's fine. Well, actually, it's not fine. That's a way of doing it, but guess what's going to happen? The next person is going to screw it up too because you didn't fix, really fix the problem, right? You threw a Band-Aid on it, and, and you shot the first person you saw. You killed the messenger, which I get. You always kill the messenger, <laughs> but um, you, you went after the wrong thing, and it's going to rear its head again down the road. It's just going to be a different person. And then, you know, organizations that, 
that micromanage and, and don't have a high level of accountability will keep doing that. They'll keep firing people. They'll keep rotating people. They'll keep reprimanding people. And then all along the problem keeps happening over and over and over. And they can't figure out why, because their mindset is, well, it's the person. We're just not hiring the right people, right? They're, they're just screwing up. They're just not smart enough. And, and all along it's like, no, you didn't put the tools in place they needed. You didn't train them properly or the procedure was wrong or the scenario just set them up for failure or you had them in the wrong spot for their skill set. There's a multitude of reasons why it wasn't their fault necessarily. It was more of a systemic problem. I think that's where, you know, the, the art of management comes in and the accountability piece is acknowledging that, hey, we had a problem. What did we do wrong first? That should be the first question that gets asked, not what did that person screw up. And, and to be honest, I'm not saying people are infallible. That person may have screwed it up. But you can't start there. You have to start with, okay, uh, is everybody okay? Did they follow the checklist? Yes. Okay. Is the checklist correct? Well, no. Okay, well, I can't really fault that person because now we gave them the wrong damn procedure. Or, yeah, the checklist is good, but... It's new machinery, technology's changed, it should have been updated. Okay, fair. We need to do that before this happens again. Um, and, and I don't feel that happens enough um, when, when it comes to issues, especially safety issues, because it's too easy to say the person screwed it up. It's too easy to say they forgot to tether off. It's too easy to say they didn't wear their hard hat, right? Because superficially, that's what it looks like went wrong. Well, they didn't have a hard hat on, no wonder the wrench hurt them. Okay, but why didn't he have the hard hat on? Like, what were the things that led up to that? Oh, the foreman was walking around, and they were doing a, a site tour for a bunch of VPs and investors, and they didn't want to wear their hard hat, so they just say, hey, don't worry about it this time. It'll be fine. They'll walk through, and they do the tour, and as the guy's walking back to go put his hard hat on, the wrench hits him, right? And it's kind of like, <laughs> okay, yeah, you should have had your hard hat on, but how, how did that happen? And lo and behold, you trace the story back, he was told not to put it on because, you know, the suits didn't want to wear theirs. And then it's like, okay, well, that's a systemic problem in my mind. As a manager, I really can't reprimand that person. Um, I probably should choose out somebody else's butt. Um, and that's usually about the time OSHA shows up and then someone's got a wrench in their head and, <laughs> and it doesn't matter why at that point. Um, but all right, guys, that's about, you know, we're coming up on about 40 minutes here, and uh, I'm sure you're tired of hearing me talk solo. Uh, I tried to roll Cam in a little bit. Um, and, uh, again, I want to uh, uh, thank all of Doug's sponsors, CCS Group, Fallowitz Construction Services, the Nebraska Department of Labor, uh, all the students over at Metro uh, for submitting questions. And, and everybody listening, please, please, please uh, send questions to Doug. Uh, one, it makes our life easier because we, now we can speak to exactly what you want to hear and we can answer the questions that, that you have in mind. And um, and any ideas, like not necessarily questions, but just topics you want us to cover. And I'm here once a month with Doug talking leadership and management. Um, but, you know, I can come on anytime. I see Doug twice a week, every week. Uh, we train together. And we're always talking about different things, different topics and different what-ifs. And, and I'm always throwing different scenarios at him while we're training. Um, it's more of a, a gab session as his workout half the time. And, but a lot of good stuff comes out of it. And I wish sometimes we would just have the recorder on us while we're just, while we're hitting pads and working out. Cause we get on some really good topics and then we kind of, we kind of, you know, like, like I said, you know, just blow it out there and then we don't get it on tape and it's never the same again. Um, but 
Um, and and sh- share the podcast. Doug's got some really, really good information on here and in an area that I think is sorely misunderstood and, and underappreciated, and that being the safety area. And it's too often it, it's, it's, a, it's a Band-Aid fix. Too often it's a program that companies just put on the books and put in place because they have to have it, and it's not really part of their leadership team. Uh, the safety person needs to be part of the leadership team. They need to be seen in the company as a leader. Um, to get these programs to be embraced and become a, a culture, um, a culture of working safely rather than just a safety program we have to do and putting the binders on the shelves and checking all the boxes and keeping OSHA out of our chili. It needs to be more than that. And, and that safety professional needs to be part of the leadership team in my mind and, and needs to be seen as somebody that's making the workplace better for everybody and, and making, at the end of the day is making the company money, you know, and how, how does a safety person make the company money? Well, they're preventing accidents. They're preventing spending. They're being proactive, which we know is cheaper than being reactive. Um, and they're keeping costs down at the end of the day. So, um, yeah, that's making money. That's how, that's how they're showing bottom line improvement. And then that's why I think the COOs and CEOs and CFOs need to embrace those safety professionals more because it, it, it is a dollars and cents thing at the end of the day. It's, n- it's not just a check in the box and satisfying some standards that OSHA or whatever, you know, governing body wants us to have. So with that, guys, I will send you off. Have a great Memorial weekend. Cam, you got any plans this weekend? Yeah, got to go hang out with uh, the wife's family. Do some, uh, do some good family time. We haven't had it, you know, haven't had a chance to do it for a year. You, you, you know? say that with a little bit of a... No, I had the biggest smile on my face. I'm very happy to see them. They're listening. I can attest to that. He did. <laughs> ear to ear grin. My son and I are actually going to hop in the car this afternoon. We're heading out to Indianapolis for the race. Oh, cool. Yeah. It's kind of a family tradition. Uh, I'll meet my brother out there and his son. And then usually once in a while, some other family members and friends will tag along and go to the race. My aunt, I had an aunt and uncle that went to the Indy 500 for probably, oh my gosh, 30 or 40 years straight. And then I went from the time I was in, they started taking me along. And I went from the time I was in first grade to 11th grade. And then obviously college and military got in the way. And then my brother and I started picking the nutrition back up about six, seven years ago. So, and, it, and he lives in Pennsylvania. So Indianapolis is about halfway between oh, yeah. us. So we'll kind of meet halfway and then spend the weekend, watch the race. That and sounds then, awesome. Yeah. It, it's, I'll tell you what, it is, it is a spectacle. What, what's amazing is, is that w- when the stands are full and they let everybody in, there's 300,000 people wow. in one spot. That's, like, that's, that's crazy. It's a, it's an insane amount of people. Showing up for one event, like 300,000. Like, what's the average arena? 16,000? Yeah. 16 to 20. Uh, yeah. a, f- a big football stadium is 100,000, right? And there's three times that <laughs> in one <laughs> spot. It's crazy. It's crazy. But anyway, have a good weekend, guys. Be safe. Uh, don't drink and drive all that jazz. But uh, have a good weekend, everybody. Enjoy the long weekend. We'll see you next time. A Huda Media Production.